Welcome to FinTech Fridays. Oh, yeah. A weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things FinTech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Hello, everybody. Craig Asano, founder and CEO of NCFA Canada, welcoming you to a very special episode 57 of FinTech Fridays. It's a regular podcast brought to you by NCFA and Partners, where we sit down with the amazing experts, leaders, CEOs, and founders in the fintech and funding community and talk about literally everything under the sun. Uh, today, there's a certain degree of celebration around innovating in the space around the topic of 10 years of investment crowdfunding. I can't even, we'll say it again, a decade of investment crowdfunding. Today, we're going to talk about the past, the present, and future since the Jobs Act was enacted in the United States. We have an absolute amazing group of OGs in the equity crowdfunding, securities-based crowdfunding, investment crowdfunding, you name it, the terminology has been evolving, but the people and experts are the same. They're coming together to reminisce and celebrate 10 years of the JOBS Act, which was introduced in the United States in 2012, and it stands for Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, and it really signaled a turning point on opening up capital markets with sweeping regulatory changes, a lot of promises, uh, new financial instruments for dealer brokers to raise capital for early stage ventures, startups, and SMEs, and also the idea of democratizing access to capital for a wide range of investors who could lend, uh, invest equity capital into the ventures they love. So 10 years is an incredibly long time. So let's dig in. First thing I'd like to do is introduce our panelists or our guests today. Um, we have a Canadian contingent and a U.S. contingent. So I'll kick off with our U.S. colleagues, in fact. Um, let me get this here. I'm going to start with Andrew Dix. He is the founder and CEO of uh, Crowdfund Insider, also known as Crowded Media Group. Of course, it's a leading news and information website covering all things uh, in not just the securities-based crowdfunding industry, but digital finance, peer-to-peer, -peer, marketplace lending. They also talk about rewards. They really cover all things fintech. So if you're if you're not a subscriber of the newsletter, check it out. It's incredible. Plus, Andrew Dix is an amazing guy. I want to thank him personally for participating, supporting, getting involved. And really, together, we've been trying to connect North America in many different ways. So love that to continue. And thanks for joining us today, Andrew. Next, we have uh, Sherwood Niece, Mr. Woody. That's another story, perhaps. Woody, I'd, I never ever got the story about why they call you Woody, but he is the principal at Crowdfund Capital Advisors and partner at Crowd Capital Ventures. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's an investor, and he was instrumental in helping the Jobs Act get passed. He's created uh, the first database that aggregates online investment offerings under the Jobs Act, provides a ton of research analysis in the securities-based industry that is used by policymakers, the SEC, and everyone worldwide. And he really has a heart and a bent for supporting local economies right across the United States. So welcome, Woody, uh, or Sherwood Nice. And next, finally, from our U.S. contingent, we have Kim Wills. We're delighted that the founder and CEO, Crowd Bureau Corp. Kim is a securities-based crowdfunding, peer-to-peer, and on line lending and digital banking pioneer. Uh, I certainly won't stop there. There's a lot of things to talk about, Kim. I certainly can't get them all in. She, she's corporate governance, risk management, banking regulation, author, adjunct professor, a business owner that led to 2017 launching 
as the founder and CEO of Crowd Bureau Corporation that provides uh, rule-based stock indices for financial products such as ETFs and managed account platforms, also providing research analysis, risk management for the peer-to-peer -peer bank, digital banking industry. She has been quoted over 100 times on the Jobs Act, so a real expert and guru, and thank her for being here today. Thanks, Kim. And let's move on to our Canadian uh, contingent. Uh, I always say when Alex is joining us, we don't need to introduce Alex. She's been a long-time advisor. She's an amazing securities lawyer. Um, she really feels passionately about helping small businesses and receives our highest endorsement. So if anyone is interested in the laundry list of uh, legal services, uh, you've got to get in contact with Alex. I mean, we're talking M&A, dealer registrations, uh, private placements, financial transactions, reverse mergers, there's IPOs, blah, blah, blah. You, you get it. Alex is the one to go to. Peter Paul up next. So thank Sorry, Alex, I, I always kind of say the same thing for you, but I, I you know, we, we have had an amazing uh, journey in 10 years, which brings us together. So thank you and welcome. Peter Paul Van Hoken. Peter, where are you? There you go. Give us your hand there. Founder and CEO of Front Funder. Uh, I met Peter Paul many years ago at one of the NCBA conferences, even pre-launching uh, Front Funder. And it's been incredible to see his journey. I think you launched that business in 2013. It's now Canada's leading online funding and investment platform in the private capital market space. Uh, you've been dealing uh, with a number of companies over the years, working with regulars coast to coast, always have new plans in the works. You're a busy guy. Thanks for joining us. Um, last, we have Alan Wincha at Token Funder. He's the CEO and Chief Token Officer. So we're going to be talking about some blockchain things today. Alan got his start. In, as a software engineer, he was a scientist and then identified early on that Ethereum was a game changer and he envisioned a decentralized future powered by blockchain. And so through his uh, life's work, he's implemented numerous enterprise tech driven solutions and transformations. He was a capital markets and credit risk systems executive at a global bank. He's the founder now of Token Funder and there are a number of firsts I wanted to call out um, that I had discovered. Um, Token Funder, uh, as, a, as a starter, is a Canadian leader in exempt market digital securities investing and trading, and he's currently very busy building that adventure. His first, or he launched Canada's first regulatory compliance security token on the Ethereum public blockchain chain, the first security token as an exempt market dealer, and the first secondary market security token trading platform called Freedom X for the private markets. It's a mouthful. I think it's, it's suffice to say we have um, a stellar cast. There is no question in the securities-based crowdfunding world that this group cannot answer. So we are going to have a past, present, and future approach uh, for the next 45 minutes, maybe 60 minutes or so. So let's uh, get started uh, on the first part. Let's just dig into the past. So we're going to do roundtables because there's so many speakers uh, and try to keep it as casual and, and yet informative in storytelling as, as we can here at group. So first question is around, you know, for many listeners, what is the Jobs Act? What was it meant to be created for? What was the impetus? What was the purpose? And what did it mean to you? I, I think is, is the kicker because, you know, I had my own uh, discovery moment with the Jobs Act and you know, that was at a time when NCFA was forming, and this takes us back to that decade. I think it was in the summer of 2012. 
I'd like to um, start this one off maybe with uh, someone like Sherwood Nice because he was instrumental in, in, we saw this from our Canadian, you know, grounds, what was going on, we were following it. Um, take us through those days, the, the, the Jobs Act and what it meant to you and, and your involvement. Um, well, great to be here, by the way. Thank you, um, Craig. Um, so, you know, there were all these provisions of the JOBS Act that were working independently through Congress at the same time. Um, we were very much involved in the investment crowdfunding one. Uh, we wrote the framework for it. We went to the SEC and presented to them as entrepreneurs that were frustrated with having to raise money only from accredited investors and didn't understand why these laws that were 80 years old governed the way we raise capital today. Um, we literally sat down with a blank piece of paper and said, listen, if we've raised a million dollars under these current exemptions, what if we crafted one that sort of blends in Kiva, Kickstarter, Indiegogo with securities-based you know, capital formation? Uh, Eight-point framework, brought it to the SEC. They told us to go to Congress. Naively enough, we just walked over to Congress, started walking up and down the halls of Congress, speaking to people on both sides. The White House um, heard us testifying at the first House panel hearing. Um, they got engaged. They had a contact there that worked side by side with us. Um, you know, President Obama, Democrat, you know, Patrick McHenry sort of took the lead in the House Republican. And this was probably the last bipartisan piece of legislation to go through Congress <laughs> since, you know, since it happened. Um, but, you know, it was, you know, you know, we were very focused on, you know, startups pre, you know, IPO startups. SMEs and how to get capital to them. Um, you know, the other provisions itself, we became very familiar with um, literally when we were at the White House uh, for the bill signing ceremony, because we saw all of them come together. Um, we actually saw that in the Senate when they pulled it together for the Jobs Act. But, um, you know, I, I, we shut up with, you know, how do we create jobs? How do we, you know, spur innovation in America? And, uh, you know, I think we've accomplished that, and I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about it in a little bit, but I won't spill the beans on that, but the data says yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, those were exciting days. I rem remember them fondly from a distance. Uh, uh, this is certainly pre-COVID a decade ago, right? <laughs> so let's uh, jump over to some perspective uh, with you, Kim. You next. Yeah, so, so following up to what Woody was saying, I mean, I know him by Woody, not really Sherwood. I don't like that name so much, but Woody, I love. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so really after that framework was created that Woody's talking about, we had to take that, what I think became was a 17 or 18 page framework uh, at the signing. And we had to take that, those, those, those frameworks and really create the bodies of work to allow the industry to get moving and to employ that capital to the small and medium-sized enterprises. And so from 2012 up through 2016, um, the JOBS Act has seven different titles, but three of those titles, we needed to put some rules in place that would give us some proposed rules and then take that to the public for, comment, for comments. And then we then had final rules that came out for each titles two, three, and four. And so when you talk about my being cited a hundred times, it wasn't cited necessarily in the Wall Street Journal or New York Times, so I was cited in those as well. It was in the final body of work that came out. And so in terms of titles three and titles four, my work was cited over a hundred times in terms of giving recommendations on how the marketplace was going to operate. 
Um, and so with that said, uh, a big part of this is not only just getting capital in the hands of the entrepreneur, it was around creating another asset class uh, in terms of regulatory crowdfunding. It was about uh, providing a gateway to the IPO uh, ramp on. So that's title one of the Jobs Act. Uh, and then the other piece to this was ensuring that the retail market retail investors could actually take part in investing in early stage ventures. And so that was the, the piece, you know, in terms of not just taking money from the accredited investor, but accepting money from the non-accredited investor mm -hmm. without a pre-existing uh, relationship with them is what really made the Jobs Act something really powerful and influential. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about that as we engage in this conversation. That's so exciting. I mean, the potential of a brand new asset class, the jobs, the, the new opportunities, everything, all the excitement and buzz that happens when something new and shiny hits the market. I remember those days, the, the media was ringing off the phone and people were super excited. So let's go over to you, Mr. Dix. That was right around the time you were setting up uh, Crowdfund Insider. Uh, you, you had this vision, you saw this activity. Jobs Act for you. Yeah, well, um, I, I'm glad that we heard from uh, Kim and Woody first, because they were there before day one. I mean, you talk about, you know, OGs, they're like, you know, right there before the beginning. So it's great that, that the two of you can participate in this. For me, when I first heard about it, I was like, what, that's not legal? Why can't you raise money online? It doesn't make sense. Um, and, and so it was kind of a, it was kind of a, you know, the light bulb went on. Well, now this is going to be legal. So what does this mean? But I think for like most people, you see that there's a bill that becomes law and you think, okay, well, tomorrow we can start using it. That didn't happen. It actually took uh, quite some time to get through everything as Kim alluded to. And uh, in regards to Title III or regulation crowdfunding or Reg CF, the one that I think that gets the most uh, um, you know, interest from people, it wasn't until 2016 that we actually had final rules that could become actionable. So I wanted to click my fingers and say, go, let's get this done. Um, and it didn't happen like that. And I think there was a lot of frustration within the industry, within the platforms that were aiming to, to leverage the, the new regulations. Um, but once it did set into place, then you really started to, to see something new, different, and exciting. And I think it's something that is, is obviously ongoing today. And it's also something that we're still at the very beginning of. And, and I know you guys have been here forever and it seems like you know decades have been you know, fighting for this, but it's really at the very beginning of online capital formation, securities crowdfunding, whatever you wanna call it. It takes a long time. If there's one lesson I've learned over the years, affecting change and the number of meetings and the, the, the work effort involved, it's monstrous. And they open up large volumes from the past and there's a lot there. They need to unpack it. And then just the effort to balance the value proposition for all the stakeholders, it's, it's enormous. And to see it happening uh, again as, as the industry falls, but that's, that's further down in the podcast. So uh, that provides some great background for the, the excitement back in 2012 around the JOBS Act. Let's jump north to the Canadian border here. And I think uh, we're going to start with you, Peter Paul. 
because you um, have been involved since uh, the Jobs Act from, from a long time ago. What were your thoughts from a Canadian perspective uh, and, and a little bit about our road to creating Canadian regs? Right. So, yeah, and, and also great to be here on this, uh, uh, in this discussion. Um, you know, I indeed, uh, I remember the early days, uh, actually this was after a couple of years that I, I, um, I have been in, in Canada uh, and originally moved over from the Netherlands and sort of after a couple of years got a lay of the land of the securities landscape and also figured out fairly quickly that in Canada that we actually blessed with 13 securities regulators, which is, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which puts an interesting, uh, uh, you know, dimension to obviously also innovating, particularly in the regulatory space. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I remember there the days where, of course, the Jobs Act uh, was introduced and, uh, and followed with interest here north, north of the border. Uh, and, uh, and, and we obviously wanted something similar here. And uh, for all the same reasons as, uh, as, as, as Kim uh, also mentioned about opening it up, access to retail investors and all that. Uh, and, and it's been, um, uh, you know, it's, be, it's been, an, it's been de definitely a bumpy road. Uh, and and that's, that really comes down to the fact that, of course, the regulators in Canada wanted to, uh, also sort of facilitated is looked closely what was happening in the US. Uh, and so rules came through in actually the first crowdfunding rules in, in 2000, uh, that was in 2015. Um, and of course the challenge was that, uh, that those rules were fragmented because of the fact that we have different, uh, you know, multiple regulators in, in Canada. So, so although we could start in 2015 with, you know, experimenting with with uh, with with crowdfunding, um, it is actually uh, only since uh, now September of last year, and we talk about it a bit bit later. But September last last year, 20, uh, 2021, that we have harmonized crowdfunding rules in Canada from coast to coast. So that's how new it is really here. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, we and that's how I looked at it from from uh, you know founding you know, uh, front funder and launching it is to you to use what was already available. And of course we have different, uh, uh, we have different uh, uh, exemptions like the credit investor exemption. We're gonna go beyond that, which we could do with an exemption like the offering memorandum, but of course also with the new crowdfunding rules. So yeah, it's been, I remember the early days and also the, the, the engagement with the regulators who obviously also really in sort of in the dark on, you know, if and how should we allow this? And uh, so also here in Canada, We've we've definitely come a long way, and I would uh, totally uh, uh, totally agree with uh, what Andrew was saying. Is that uh, you know I, I feel like we're sort of perhaps at uh, at the, at the end of the beginning, uh, and uh, you know uh, we're really uh, there's much more to come. But of course, I also often say like you know if you want to see where the puck is going, and we don't necessarily look within Canada, but also at other geographies like the UK, where it also started. I would say perhaps fair to say sort of the, really one of the first countries in the US, of course, with following the jobs like uh, called up very quickly, but we see where it's going and we see how it's how it's sort of really advanced there. So that is really exciting. And that's what certainly kept me and, you know, going and knowing that, you know, this is where it's it's going and we see that it's happening right now. I love the hockey references. I, I don't know if you saw my my cup, but uh, where is it? With hockey dad. Anyway, uh, I, I yeah, the, the, those were the days. There were numerous calls uh, with with a variety of provincial regulators trying to educate. Uh, we had several trips to Ottawa. Uh, we, we brought in for a, a variety of presentations, questions, but things were just not moving as fast as industry would would like. But seems to be the common sort of sense sensibilities around it. But Alex, um, 
what what was it like from your perspective? I mean, just just the road to creating the regs, what happened, all of that. Okay, so so Craig Craig at one of the conferences said, "I heard you cried on stage talking about crowdfunding." He goes, "It made it made my day to hear that." So I'm known as a crier about uh, access to capital for small and and uh, other issues. I've been trying to change regulation prior to equity crowdfunding. You know, part of it is, as Paul alluded to, we have the offering memorandum exemption in Canada. And when it was initially introduced, it didn't require audited financial statements, believe it or not, if a company was a certain stage in their business and they didn't have them. So if it was a newly formed company less than, you know, two years old, no audited financial statements were required. It didn't have any caps in terms of how much you could raise. And small companies didn't use it because they didn't really know that it existed because no one was doing that outreach to, to you know, smaller companies that weren't located in Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto. And it's always been one of my beefs of mine. They changed uh, the offering memorandum when they started kind of uh, introducing it into other provinces. Ontario didn't have that exemption until about two, three years ago. Um, but when they did make the changes, that was around 2000, maybe 1998, 2000. That's how old I am on this. Um, but they required audited financial statements. And I, and I, you know, submitted a letter saying, if you put audited financial statements in, you automatically make it something that smaller companies aren't going to use. Uh, one, they use, you know, at the time we did, we were still using Canadian Gap for public companies, but we shortly switched over to IFRS. Um, but most, most small companies don't get audited financial statements and said it really didn't make sense for early stage companies to do that. They did it anyway. And I said, the only parties that are going to use it are funds and real estate. And that's exactly what's happened. And the regulators seem to be surprised by that. Um, anyway, so, you know, we've been advocating for other kind of changes in rules and, and crowdfunding was something that I got on quite early. So I also was one of the only lawyers that had done six Regulation A offerings before the changes to Regulation A. And so the SEC reached out and a couple of other people reached out and said, you know, what can we do with that? And, you know, I think almost all of the securities lawyers that they canvassed all said, raise the amount. But, you know, Regulation A really doesn't address those small and micro cap companies that really I want to have access to capital. Um, so I participated with the SEC forums and flew down there to participate in person, uh, talked to as many people as I could. And they also participated on the state side. So the SEC side was moving too slow for me and it was moving too slow in Canada. And I think the correct approach that, that uh, your group, Woody, took was going to the legislatures rather than trying to do it with the securities regulators themselves. And so pushing down, it seemed that really worked. And so I started kind of working with a couple of different groups and talking about state equity crowdfunding and trying to affect the change that way and talking to NASA about equity crowdfunding because they were adamantly against it. And I think uh, Chair White at the time, uh, who was the chair of the SEC, was adamantly against equity crowdfunding. She thought that that would undo her legacy of investment protection. And that's in part why it kind of dragged on so long. And 506C has not been useful. 506C allows for accredited investors to, uh, for you to scream out as a company to look for those people and do advertising. But because of the rules that were put around there for investor protection, that rule really has not taken off in the US. And, and we can talk about later about kind of Jobs Act uh, 4, I guess they're calling or 2022 and, and what that may hold. But um, yeah, so, so here in Canada, 
uh, Saskatchewan was the first party that brought it in. So the Jobs Act really started Canadian securities regulators thinking about should we do something too? And uh, people like myself, Craig, uh, some other people that are no longer Brian Kosak, I would say, started kind of talking to securities regulators saying that we need something like this too. So Saskatchewan adopted the first equity crowdfunding in December 6th of 2013. And leave it to like a prairie province that's very kind of, you know, looking and saying our investors and companies aren't getting the love. Let's try this out. Uh, they were on their own. All the other provinces were adamantly against it. Uh, and it was March 2014 that it ended up being adopted, the startup crowdfunding exemption by six of the provinces. But it was really, really, really curtailed by kind of the market cap that or the amount of capital that people could raise. It was $300,000, uh, two financings of 150 each, uh, limits of 1,500 per investors. It wasn't very useful. And I think we're gonna talk a little bit later about how it's kind of evolved. Ontario also introduced one that they wanted to put forward and, and their version of equity crowdfunding had a larger cap, looked more like the US version, but also had uh, you know, the requirements of audited financial statements and continuing audited financial statements for the life of the company, which made it prohibitive for small companies to use. And they were surprised, and I don't think they were surprised, that it wasn't being used and still hasn't been used because it's just, it just does not fit for the type of companies that it was aimed at. So anyway, and yes, I still cry when I think about equity crowdfunding <laughs> and I get pissed off and... and uh, I try not to yell and scream. I'm not a yeller and screamer, but um, you know, I, I think there are effective ways that that uh, I think we can move the needle even a little bit further. I remember that first news that came out of Saskatchewan. Uh, I was in the city down, downtown Toronto somewhere. I saw my phone. I think that was eye-watering for me. Even and we were texting everybody, getting super excited, and there were like ten people interested in it. That that's how you know early it was. It would seem, and there, there's obviously uh, a lot of changes that have happened since then. But you know, Mr. Wuncha Allen, token runner. I remember we met in 2016. You came down to the NCFA office. Uh, and you, you, you dropped the word crypto or blockchain or tokens. And it was kind of mind blowing. You know, everybody, when they first hear is trying to wrap their head around it. Um, blockchain finance, did the jobs act resonate with you or you had to go back digging into that or what, what are your thoughts on it? Wow. And, and thank you for having me as well. Uh, you know, uh, having lived through, as you said, through, uh, 2016 to today, I certainly have benefited from. Uh, and appreciate uh, all the work that you have done and Alex and Peter Paul and, and those in the Canadian space. Um, hugely, uh, hugely important for the industry. Uh, we, I mean, we took some um, unprecedented or, or that's sometimes uh, considered naive steps in trying to apply uh, what was available and, and apply it in a in a new, you know, in a new format, and and our objective was to ultimately um, allow for these uh, these crowdfunding and and uh, you know uh, investment opportunities to be made made available through this this new format of of blockchain and creating digital securities and such. Uh, so so we ended up having a you know. A, Another set of challenges, frankly, and, and Peter Paul's absolutely right in that uh, you know, having so many, you know, provincial regulators uh, had, had, was something that, uh, frankly, took me by surprise. And uh, you know, coming into the industry, not realizing that it was uh, that fragmented, and that 
you know, everybody needed to opine on your business model and, and, and everyone needed to, every jurisdiction needed to review, you know, every screen of your platform and every, you know, uh, method of your transaction. It was, it was daunting. And so it took a long time um, for us to, to achieve where, you know, what we wanted to, to achieve. And I say a long time, I mean, uh, whereas we thought, you know, this, this was going to be a quick path. It would, it would have taken us, um, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happened behind the scenes. So, you know, not getting into that, but, um, you know, a, a good solid year just to get the, the understanding of blockchain within the whole regulatory community and, and comfort level with, with what could, you know, digital securities do and how could we, how could we employ potentially, um, cryptocurrencies, um, which, by the way, is a challenge still today, and that's not a regulatory securities uh, regulatory issue. It's more of a banking issue. So, uh, you know, the, the the two end up meeting in a model that that we try to, you know, bring forward, and that's uh, leveraging um, new forms of uh, payment and new forms of investment uh, in, in, as digital assets. And that was, you know, these are all big challenges. So. Uh, you know, we've got a significant amount of scars as we went through the whole education process um, around around implementing blockchain, and then and then how could we potentially make these new, typically illiquid securities more liquid? And therein lies um, a whole you know several years worth of work, uh, which has been you know, frankly, again. Um, I'd say <laughs> having come into the space as a as, as an entrepreneur, um, on the one hand, I mean, I've, I've, I've been involved in many startups, but I also came from the regulatory space uh, just before blockchain and, uh, as you said, one of the biggest banks. Uh, so I was very familiar with uh, regu regulatory processes, but I was way too optimistic in terms of how how quickly we can move the needle. So... Uh, an incredible amount of, uh, I'd say, education was required, and then, you know, finding finding legal support and legal counsel that actually understood the kind of model that we were we were proposing was another challenge altogether. Um, we're not there yet. We're we're still moving forward. Um, you know, with with constant education. There's there's new technologies. There's decentralized finance technologies that we should be taking advantage of. But our our new frontiers for our regulators today, and so I've you know, kind of moved into where we are today. Sorry, Craig. Um, oh, but, you're uh, killing it! You know, you want to, we we have we have uh, as as the others have said. You know, there's there's been there's just been a road and a journey that that we've all decided to climb. And, you know, we took one and we benefited from the work of all of, of everyone else here uh, on the panel. And, and yet we found that we, we ran into a new set of obstacles, a new set of obstacles, including, you know, banking regulations that, that ultimately impacted our ability to, to accept cryptocurrency, which, which we don't today. But we do create the digital securities. So how do we make them tradable? Now we're working with okay so applying the offering memorandum uh exemptions in in a new format that's kind of where we begin and we still to, as as of today we're we're in discussions um with uh with how we're going to 
frankly uh, expand um, what what uh, what their what I'd say is their comfort level with with where we stand on investor protections, quote unquote. Because I'd say one other thing I will say is that um, our our journey through this and our learning is is as Alex I think has alluded to very well is that. Uh, even even law firms and and companies that we've worked with have, have kind of been scared off by the whole offering memorandum um, exemption process. So, you know, having having that as a headwind has been challenging. And and then you're uh, and then and then of course as I say, um, trying to trying to come into you know bringing a new technology forward, um, we end up with ultimately trying to kind of unwrap or uh, more more deeply kind of dive into what exactly are investor protections as a principle versus a rule and you know our principles are very clear now our rules need some change and our rules can change and we can apply some new technologies which we do and we propose today to to embed investor protections in a unique and novel way but they take time so they take time for for the individual jurisdictions, um, and, and as we as we happen to be in Ontario first, we we start there. But then we have to go around, you know, the country and getting and getting blessed at pretty much every level, and that's a challenge today. I feel your pain. I do feel your pain. Uh, we, we we've all been there uh, in, in in varying capacities, um, but that was ten years ago. I mean, collectively, we have over a hundred years. I think if you add each one of these Zoom boxes up, of of like, let's not forget the purpose. The you know, raising capital, providing opportunities. You, you know, like Woody, I'm going to throw it back to you. When when you were setting up the database and tracking those offerings, um, doing all that outreach, partnering with all the the DBs, the dealer broker platforms, and everything, how big did you think? How big do you think the regulators thought? that this would be, did, did they think this would be a huge ocean or did they always envision a little pond? And maybe we can propel that a little bit into the present today. Some of the, you know, what you've been seeing types of companies, um, the impact, let's get into some of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. When, so, you know, entrepreneurs, highly optimistic, uh, doers, we can achieve anything. Um, at the White House bill signing ceremony, I was approached by one of the regulators from NASA, and he said, I hope you're prepared to be sued for everything wow. that you have. And I was sort of confused, and I was like, well, I guess he's going to think it's, it's going to be bigger than I thought. <laughs> um, and then the woman who helped champion this through Congress with us, because, you know, we don't have the connection. She did, Karen Kerrigan of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council. Um, you know, we were leaving the White House and she said, you know, guys, um, don't expect this to hit for seven years. She goes, I equate this to like medical savings accounts. You know, they passed Congress. It took some work. Nobody knew about it for five years. Then you had like, you know, in the fourth year, starting to get some traction, fourth through six years. And then it started to take off. She goes, you're probably going to see the same thing. And interestingly enough, that really is what the data shows. I mean, I think this is a little more it's picking up a little faster. In May of 2019, I really started to see traction pick up among investors. The dollars started picking up in earnest after that. Um, you know, there's been over 5,300 5, offerings. 
by well over 4,000 companies. There's been multiple offerings by companies. There's been 1.4 million investors. Um, this past October, we hit a billion dollars. I thought that was a, you know, a threshold that would really engage financial services firms, the media uh, covering this. You know, we've yet to see that sort of traction pick up. Um, you know, this year alone, I think we'll do another billion dollars. Last year, there were about 1,500 offerings. This year, I think we'll probably do 2,500 alone in the United States. Um, the thing that I've been really most impressed with, though, is the number of industries represented. I mean, you know, when we left, the, when we were lobbying for this and we were talking to people in Congress, we were like, well, you know, pre-IPO startups can create a lot of jobs. Um, on the other hand, you've got these retail businesses that have been crushed during the recession. Um, how can we get capital to them so that they can keep local economies going? So, you know, my, our brains are sort of on both ends of that spectrum. But, you know, this crystal ball that I look at every day of all of these offerings taking place, you know, the SD, um, we've got, what, 512, 512 uh, NAICS codes. Those are the industry codes um, for all industries in the United States. I guess it could be global as well. Um, and there's over 90% of issuers that have been successful in all of those industry codes. So, you know, from solar panel to, you know, electric vehicles to beauty supply, I mean, you know, crypto, hot sector, you know, you've got platforms that are forming, you know, uh, core competencies in each of these. I think it's, it's, it blows my mind personally, you know, of what's going on. I, you know, I, I think that we're in this, you know, I'm in this information overload phase, I'll tell you that much, um, where there's just so much going on. It's the opportunity is, is mind blowing. Um, but, you know, I, I personally think I'm seeing these unicorns that are just percolating right in front of my eyes. Well, a billion dollars, like applaud, applause for that. It, it, and that is certainly uh, a milestone, but you know, the, this, the regulatory changes that have happened since 10 years ago, I mean, you know, Andrew, did you want to touch upon that? I mean, jumping from a million and then, you know, the accounting up to a million, you know, a million five and now five million. I mean, we, we have been advocating at NCFA for a five million threshold to be internationally competitive for, for years. And as, as Peter Paul was alluding to, we just got harmonized crowdfunding. So Mr. Dix, what, what, do, what do you think about the, the, the market opportunity size? Like, do we, are we going to have like 10 years ago, how many platforms did we see in that initial flurry of interest and then how many platforms we got today and we're, how many, how big is the market capacity? Well, that's, that, I think that's kind of, kind of an, an unknown as we define that right now. Um, but you asked a couple, couple questions. First of all, I think the changes that were made last year by the Securities Exchange Commission, most importantly, uh, Reg CF bumping up to 5 million, Reg A plus to 75 million. Those are material improvements. There, there were some other things that were added there that were helpful as well. And, and I think, you know, simply taking a, a 1.07 million funding cap and, and make, moving it up uh, to 5 million was huge because a seed round today is millions of dollars for a promising young firm. And, and it really made a lot more sense. And so that was, a, that was a big win for the industry. We saw an issuer raise $5 million the same day it became actionable. Uh, I think for the industry, that's awesome and amazing. It's gonna help fuel and boost things. I, I think that, that uh, as we've mentioned before, we're still early days. This is going to be an enormous industry, but I don't think we're going to be talking about it like as as uh, 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 you know, security crowdfunding, investment crowdfunding. It's going to be more like digital investment banking. Digital securities are the future, 
And it's just hard for us to kind of get our thoughts around that. And the digitization of finance is going to create more opportunity over the coming decades than we can really understand uh, uh, right now. I also believe that to really scale, and, 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 to, and when I say scale, I'm talking about for, for platforms and for the ecosystem, you're going to have to involve institutional money. And you're already seeing that, and it's coming. If we want a successful industry, and I think everybody does, you have three constituent you know, uh, um, portions of this industry. You have the issuers. Issuers need to, to raise the money they need. They need to do it quickly, too. The uh, platforms need to be able to make a profit. Now, today we have platforms that are actually making a profit. It took years for that to happen. And you need investors to see a return on that investment. And early stage investing is risky. Most of these companies are going to fail. That's okay. It's called a market economy. It's called capitalism. We need to embrace that because while we're funding these companies, we're creating jobs that are vitally important for the economy. We are training people with hands-on experience to, to learn innovation and entrepreneurship. This is what this country is about. This is where we need to go. We're just getting started. This is the future of, of uh, capital markets. We're seeing it right now. It's just the beginning. Where do I sign up? I love that pitch. I mean, we signed up 10 years ago. Still <laughs> uh, Kim, I'm going to throw it back to you in, in from a, maybe from a regulatory perspective or from all that experience. And you've seen us, the cat, or, or from a U.S. perspective uh, and all those different title, you know, one, two, three, four, all these different titles. Do we, does the U.S. have everything they need to uh, support this future that Andrew's talking about, the, the digital banking and the, the gaps that may exist. Just some, some thoughts there. Yeah, so I want to I, I wanna double back just on a few things and I will answer that question um, and, and I'll put some context around it. So I think that we have a lot of things already in place to support the advancements of digital finance. Uh, with whether it's the old of uh, the, the Securities Acts of 33 and 34, and then what we did with the Jobs Act, which enhanced those securities rules. Um, we have put in place a very uh, strong ecosystem, I think, that can support the advancement of digital finance. That's number one. And, and, and everything is going to continue to evolve from that. I think the misnomer here is that because people are using crypto assets or tokenization or, or smart contracts is that we have to go back to the drawing board and start all over again. And we don't. Um, we've done a lot of work to advance small and medium sized businesses or emerging growth companies an opportunity to actually raise capital. And we need to leverage those rules across all countries and then use the technology to facilitate those transactions to occur. But the rules are really in place. They just need to, to calibrate them a little bit, in my opinion. Um, I think a few other things. Woody, you may, you may remember this. I mean, by the time we got to 2016 with the final rules, we had gone through three chair people at the SEC. We had Mary Shapiro when we first started in 2012. Then we had Elise Walter about 2014. 14, 2015, mm -hmm. and then we had Mary Jo White. Right. So it was education for each of them in terms of some of the adoption of where we were trying to go. That was the first thing. 
And you may also remember, which we didn't talk about, why Ontario had actually uh, looked a lot like the U.S. is because Ontario came to us at the crowdfunding intermediary regulatory advocates and asked us to give them the framework to get the rules going in Ontario. So the OSC OS, um, took those rules that we had created for the Jobs Act and applied them there in Canada. And they did the same thing also in Malaysia and the Green Paper in, at the European Union. They took the first framework from the US and applied those rules. So that's why some of these things look a little similar. Um, so I wanted to address that because I didn't, I, I heard all of your comments, but that's how all of that kind of came together. They leveraged all of the hard work we were doing to advance the other countries. Um, in terms of where are we going, in terms of the sizing of the market and what needs to happen, you know, I, I look at crowdfunding, whether we're looking at Reg D506, C, B, or C, or Reg crowdfunding, or, you know, Regulation A+. To me, this is Gen 1 of where we're going with digital finance. If we look at where we are today in 2022, we're at Gen 2, okay, Generation 2 in terms of taking the technology and facilitating the transactions. And so a big part of this is, and I know this is part of some of your questions. So what were some of the challenges when we first started the industry? Um, well, the crowdfunding platforms, they really couldn't do crowdfunding. They had to serve really as marketing platforms and work with broker dealers to facilitate the transactions on the back end. And so when you look at some of the leading platforms today that are doing Reg CF or Reg A+, they started out as marketing platforms, whether that was Seed Invest, whether that was WeFunder, they couldn't do Reg CF because it wasn't legal, okay? Um, now they're doing that. What I see happening going forward is the evolution of blockchain will most likely replace some of the technologies that they're using and the way in which companies are raising capital, whether, you know, 2017 was the ICO, which didn't go very far. If we all know what we're doing now, a lot of companies are raising their money using IDOs. Different terminology, but it's still quite similar to what just traditional raising capital is, except they've adopted tokenization. They're using a launch pad and so forth. So I think this is the evolution of where things are going. Yeah, it's it, it's fascinating to hear the sort of the the evolution of the technology versus the platform, but it's explosive and, and from the regulatory perspective, it's very sequential and just to hear having to go back and unpack, um, but there are learnings and hopefully, you know, I, I think the market has more data than ever before, not necessarily true in Canada. And to the extent that regulators share that for, for being as transparent, so innovation can spawn from that is, all, I think, another challenge. But um, thanks for that. Okay, that, that, that. Yeah, go ahead. Can I, just, can I just add one more thing? I think the other thing, just in terms of data, we always talk about the equity side of this, but there is a debt side. And when we look at the debt side, you know, peer-to-peer -peer transactions, whether it is in payments or whether it's in lending, the idea was that securities-based crowdfunding would allow for both equity and debt. And so if I look at the numbers in terms of, from a global perspective on peer-to-peer -peer lending, 
okay, which are still using platforms, um, you know, it was over a $200 billion industry in terms of the loan sizes, you know, that, that came across. And that's from Asia, Europe, and North America. So the industry is much larger than, you know, just looking at it through the lens of what was raised on the equity crowdfunding platforms for, say, Rec CF. And I think that's part of how we need to kind of look at this, like, the terminology is changing, but we're all still talking about the same thing. And I think if we put it all together, we would say, wow, this is a much larger industry from 2012 when the regs got signed up through where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I believe um, there's a Bowhurst report out of the UK that, that tracks um, the ECF venture offerings or financings and it's now representing approximately 30 percent of all those startup raises so uh th there's there's hope but it's 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 a large pie and and every jurisdiction has its own unique challenges here but uh alex before i get to you i just want to get peter paul's thoughts on sort of the, the platform um changes that have evolved because you know remember there's a whole rewards based that came out initially uh, the Kickstarter had the tabs, the documents, and there wasn't a whole lot of tech there. It was a marketing thing that like Kim's talking about, but from your, your, your securities-based perspective, what, what have you been experiencing and are there learnings, uh, that, that have to go out to, to regulators or, uh, is it a, is it another type of limitation from your perspective? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually, what uh, Kim was saying about this terminology we're using, because I remember as we went through this journey of, you know, ECF, equity crowdfunding, and then, of course, you know, you position it as opposed to traditional crowdfunding, like the Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Wordspace, uh, pre-purchase, all that. And and actually, we were at the point where I say, you know, we need to get, we need basically need to get rid of that word equity crowdfunding altogether and call it something differently because it was, uh, was in a way, was sort of uh, struggling like, what is it? And also positioning it differently to, again, the traditional ways. Well, at the end of the day, it's really, of course, investing in companies. Anyway, going through that as well, probably to, to better stick to equity crowdfunding because that still seems to sort of reson still resonate the best of, of what we're trying to achieve here. Um, but, but you know, to Kim's point, it is indeed way beyond equity, of course. And, and if we look at uh, when we sort of do our market sizing in, in here in Canada and the potential uh, addressable market, we sort of look at the private markets in, in general. We take, we take out all those, let's say, private placements that is typically only institutional that will never, you know, to, between institutional parties even. Uh, and then what's left is, is potentially addressable for, let's say, investment crowdfunding, which could indeed be equity, but it could also be debt. Uh, we could be, uh, you know, it could be also all sorts of product convertible notes, partnership units, anything. And we actually on our platform have also seen those different, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, products, uh, you know, come come by. So I, I think that that's and that ties into the point that uh, the interview was uh, was, was uh, made about, you know, like like this is obviously. You know, this is the digitization of finance. This is the democratization of, of capital markets in general. And of course, we've seen that happening in the public markets where I believe now about 20% of 
capital going around in the public markets is actually from retail investors, you know, through the through the online trading platforms and all that. And so so the retail investor are already there and well and present in the public markets. And I think the next big thing is really that now they're going, you know, come to the to the private markets and that becomes accessible to them as as as, as well. And uh, and that's ultimately where investment crowdfunding is going. I wouldn't be surprised that you know in the in the five years forward that we may hear less about crowdfunding necessarily, but more about you know the democratization of capital markets, which includes the private market as well. So which includes also investing in startup scale-ups and and growth companies. And on on that note, um, what we've seen and we we've operated uh, to the comment about being a marketing plat- platform only. That's always been a struggle struggle here in Canada as well. Like how can you basically execute here as a platform but but be more than just a sort of back-end processing solution so 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 with front funnery we we work with the regulators to get registered as a so-called exempt market dealer sort of equivalent or broker dealer a bit a lighter version i would say uh, which enables us also actually to actively market and and promote as well so we have been able to to help companies you know uh, uh broadcast their capital raises uh, and actively on the on the on the marketing side as well and and but also be responsible for the actual trades at the at, at the back end so so i think that's uh, that's really uh, uh we, we've come a long way also here to comment about that 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 you know Woody made about you know only the last couple of years we've seen it really take off and you're absolutely right we've seen it in the uk where we early on said that's where perhaps it sort of started the earliest where you also see like you know eight years in seven eight years in it started really exponential growth and and i feel like that's where we are here in canada and certainly we already see it happen of course in the in 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 the us which is really uh, really exciting to see and final comment the rules here we are of course uh, still you know we're happy with uh, harmonized crowdfunding rules since september last last year we have a limit of 1.5 million canadian dollars which is a great progress coming from 250,000 dollars per race twice a year so let's say half a million uh, we obviously want to go up as well we want to get to 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 the 5 million us dollars that uh, that uh, regulation crowdfunding is 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 at but uh, but we we definitely see uh, certainly as we sort of where we see the market right now and sort of this funding gap anywhere between half a million Canadian dollars to two million, uh, that's typically where you see companies struggle. Where do you go? It's too big for family, friends, angels, not enough, VCs too early. So we see a lot of companies in, in that segment raising uh, with us. And uh, and but, but again, you know, moving forward, and I think that as the market gets more comfortable and, and the regulators as well, we obviously want that 1.5 limit to go, go up as well. That's amazing. Uh, you know, I, this conversation has got to go beyond what we budgeted for. If, if people are up for it, we're just going to continue rolling it a little bit longer. Got lots of things to cover here. Alex, um, I totally understand if you have to drop off. <laughs> but Alex, um, do, do, can you, you know, before we just let go of the past, because there's a convergence of so many components here and some with your experience and background in, you know, the North American context, but from a Canadian perspective and with your North American experience, what, what lessons or insights are there from uh, a regulatory perspective and any other thoughts from, you know, whether it's, it's in the investment side, you know, the buy or sell side. Uh, I'm just trying to get broader questions to to groups so we can get these points across in a specimen. You know, that's some of my regrets. Like, you know, Kim, I appreciate the Ontario Securities Commission may have pulled it from somewhere else. But, you know, we already have the offering memorandum exemption and 
and they could have retooled that in a way to make it work for those other companies. Alberta and Saskatchewan, for instance, already had a carve out where they didn't require audited financial statements for the offering memorandum exemption in those two jurisdictions. Of course, they could they were more like kind of interstate. This was interprovince type exemptions or between those two provinces. Um, but really, I thought that Ontario set. Um, I'm going to just say it out there, and I know this is, they're going to see this. They already know what I think. I think they set up crowdfunding to fail in Canada. I think Ontario didn't want it, had to put something out there, and they set it up to fail. So they know I believe that already. Um, they, they actually do believe, um, the Ontario Securities Commission, that, that small issuers in Canada are awash with capital, that there's just money available for everybody, and it's because they're undeserving of that capital that they don't get it. Um, I find that highly offensive. I've told them that. Uh, I still find it highly offensive. I just heard a securities regulator conference uh, from Alberta, uh, where, again, that securities regulator said, we've got too much capital and, uh, and, uh, and too many investors and just not enough good companies. And that's why capital's not getting to, uh, to companies is because they're just not good enough. It was kind of the underlying sentiment there. And again, I was quite offended by that. Um, you know, we, we need rules that work for entrepreneurs and uh, we need rules, uh, you know, my regret is not, like I basically ghosted a letter for a couple of different organizations. I didn't put forward my own letter at the time against what Ontario was proposing because NCFA was in support of it. And so it was a consensus group letter and that's how it went out. But I've always regretted that, of being silent at that point in time. Um, so lessons I've learned, I've learned that, you know, sometimes going to the newspaper and, and shaming regulators is sometimes a good thing to do. Not maybe the best thing to do, but sometimes it works. Um, certainly, I think, you know, for the SEC, some of the actions that they've taken, if you take a historical look, oftentimes it's when the legislature is going to do something that they end up, you know, moving something forward. And, uh, and, and I think that, uh, you know, that's good and bad. Um, I think for the state legislatures, certainly it was the state legislatures that pushed on the state securities regulators crowdfunding because they didn't want it for the most of them. But having talked to a number of those state regulators, they were really supportive of crowdfunding after having it for five years, six years in place, because they saw the benefits to their communities and the type of companies that were being funded and they were the type of companies that they wanted to be funded. And that's the feedback that I've received from several securities regulators who were quite surprised by that. Um, here in Canada, we've, we've only got like a handful of portals. We've had a number of portals that kind of started out, but they, they got starved out. You know, it just, it's just taken too long to have a national crowdfunding exemption in Canada. And so right now we've got, I think, uh, six that are registered, uh, not including the exempt market dealers like Front Funder and Equitize and, and Token Funder, which are registered as exempt market dealers. Um, and, and on the lending platform side, lending peer-to-peer -peer here in Canada has been quite difficult. I think they've had a harder time than the equity platforms in terms of getting regulators to really understand what they're trying to do and, and accessing kind of the rules. Um, they're really not kind of built for that. And so those platforms have really kind of struggled here in Canada. And down in the States, you have 74 uh, funding platforms right now that are registered with FINRA. And, you know, you have a competitive market and I think you have a very kind of robust market and certainly we would have liked to have seen, we know we're like, uh, you know, one tenth of the size of the United States in terms of population, 
But, you know, uh, 1 billion of capital having been raised, I think we're not there. I don't think we've raised like 100 million um, under our crowd crowdfunding rules. Um, on the offering memorandum exemption, which is kind of like the Regulation A or our accredited investor uh, portion, uh, certainly more capital is raised with that. Uh, offering memorandum exemption uh, regularly raises, you know, billions of dollars per year, you know, multiple millions of dollars per year because it's primarily used by funds and by real estate uh, and real estate projects, they'll raise as much as 100 million, 150 million easily under the offering memorandum. And so that's something that they regularly go to. I'm really kind of hopeful, like, you know, switching over to Jobs Act too, because I see kind of a lot of opportunity there. I would say that some of the things that are being proposed, like uh, for Rule 506, they're proposing to get ready for self-certification. So that's been the holdback, I think, of 506C being used by, by um, platforms and also by issuers in the United States. And so that's one of the proposals there that self-certification of your accredited investor status will be enough. And I'm hopeful for that. And the other is for both uh, regulation crowdfunding and also for regulation A and preempting state securities laws for secondary transactions, which I think uh, people in the industry have wanted for quite some time. Uh, the private placement and private finders exemption, it's up again. I, we had something in the legislature in 2018. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, whether this bill will go far. Um, I'm hopeful, but it sends a signal that at least people are listening and uh, I think here in Canada, I was really happy to see that we had, a, you know, a, a national rule that came in place in September 21st, 2021, where now we had a national crowdfunding rule that was in every jurisdiction. What occurred here in Canada is we had different, basically territorial wars where people would say, you know, I'm not going to adopt your rules. I want this tweak and that tweak to it. And we're not going to do that at all because we think investor protection is not being served by the startup crowdfunding exemption. And other people just kind of saying like, well, we're going to give it a try, but really no support by the regulators behind it. I think it's one of the reasons why some of the states have done really well with equity crowdfunding as well as, as peer-to-peer -peer debt crowdfunding is their state regulators actually went out and talked to investors and companies about those exemptions and explaining and educating. There's a big, huge educational component. And I think everybody in this room has stuck with it you know for the last 10 15 years however long we've been involved with trying to educate up just you know everyone in the market just how it how it works and someone like alan you know you're having to teach a whole new language uh, both to regulators as well as to companies and issuers and and i think now it pretty much everyone's mom uh, if your mom's still alive has said, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, learning more about blockchain or what is this smart contract stuff and should I be buying cryptocurrency and which one should I buy? Um, certainly when I heard an aunt say that to me, who's like 67, I thought, holy crap, <laughs> uh, things have changed. Things have definitely changed. But, um, you know, it, I, I, I'm hopeful, but at the same time, uh, I oftentimes get crushed by regulators who just you know, you, you're, it's, it's pretty much kind of like scraping onto sandpaper to try to move up the ladder there and, and, and make change. The gloves are off, Alex. I got, got to say that. But the reality is the, the you know, in, in defense or a perspective is that everybody in this call has, has so much experience. This is the frontline experience. Regulators need to be open 
uh, to, to hearing it. And, and there's a cost to being first. There's a cost to innovation. And we've all felt that. I think, Alan, you talked about scars. Well, we've all got them. <laughs> we've all got them. But, um, Alan, you know, and, and I'm trying to, you know, this is going on uh, sort of past our uh, budgeted time, but want to get into, I think we've done with the past. We're kind of in the present. We all see it happening. Uh, let's get a little bit into the, the present and, and the future. So um, from, from your perspective, the, the regulatory rigmarole, for lack of a better word, um, you're, you're still at it. What are you seeing? Are you seeing uh, more acceptance? Uh, are you seeing some, some growth opportunities? Is there any feedback or insights into your own uh, challenges that the industry can benefit from, from discussing and advancing together with you? Oh, that's that's such a long conversation. In a, uh, in a short, I'm going to give you like a, a minute um, here, two minutes. I, 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 no, I'm just saying, I, mean, I actually moved a, a call I had a few minutes ago. So um, look, uh, it is about digital finance. And I think, you know, again, I think I'm very hopeful that um, what I'm seeing is is a ramp up of um, of knowledge within the regulators. So I'm, I'm seeing it and I'm hearing it. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've still got to push because on the one hand, there are so many innovative things that we can do and we're prohibited from doing, and, and that's a whole nother conversation. Um, uh, and we're prohibited from doing so based on oftentimes, uh, you know, just the fact that uh, somebody says investor protections and, you, you know, you have to apply, you know, existing investor protections rules. And so we, we, we hear that daily and, you know, it's, um, and oftentimes we think, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of protection in place already. And, you know, there's, I think, I think education is going to go a long way and we continue to try to educate both, both the regulators and, and anyone else, uh, you know, issuers that, that work with us. Um, and I'll kind of stop right there, but I mean, I was, I was always extremely hopeful, but, um, I will say. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a, frankly, it's a monthly challenge and, you know, coming up across, uh, you know, more, um, more technology that, that we could be applying that, uh, that, that doesn't see the light of day yet because they're, they're just not, um, I guess they're just not comfortable enough seeing it because we could be applying some really advanced and decentralized finance in a way that's very investor safe. Um, but it's going to take time. So, you know, I used to think that it'd be fast. I was way overly optimistic in this journey, much too uh, optimistic. So I'm trying to, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's the right level of optimism? Because I think, you know, I usually, I have either a zero or a one. So I'm like, you know, way out here on the optimistic scale, but, but I'm constantly being asked about that. Anyway, those are, those are just my thoughts, but, you know, digital finance, absolutely. Um, you know, liquidity for, for, you know, typically illiquid assets and in, in liquid investments, um, so much more we can do there. Craig, can I jump in and bash some regulators, please, for a second? <laughs> you, you, this is where the gloves are coming off. Hey, yeah. So, so look, the, part of the problem is, is that, that regulators tend to be a certain type of people. They tend to be lawyers and bureaucrats, and by nature, they're risk averse, and they are given a mission to regulate, and it's a, it's a straight line for them, and off they go. And Alex, you once told me that they, they, 
they show their scalps, but they don't do anything else. And you're absolutely right. Uh, part of the problem is, is with the mission of most regulators, it's investor protection, it's efficient markets, maybe dabbled with a little bit of capital formation. Where we need to start is we need to add to part of that mission to support innovation and competition in markets. And that needs to be there from the beginning. That needs to be their mission. And it is not. And so you're right, Alex, when you say that frequently the, the, the regulators will do something, we say, well, you know, Congress or whoever, they're going to create a law and get to it first. So let's jump to, to, to the head of the, the line there and fix things. That's not the way things should work. And frankly, the technology is here today to mitigate and manage many of these risks that have existed since, you know, since the, 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 the uh, um, you know, the Securities Act of 33. Um, and, and we need to be forward thinking. We need to be willing to shoulder some risk. We need to embrace innovation and acknowledge that change can be good. And, and if you know, things don't work out as well as they should all the time, that's okay because hobbling and undermining innovation and financial services is a bad path. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I know in Canada, um, in Ontario, and in, in BC and in various other provinces, I'll include uh, Quebec and, and Alberta as well now, um, they, they have that little element of competition innovation being added. It's like three legs of the stool. It's not just investor protection and capital formation um, spearheaded by, you know, agencies like the Competition Bureau, but they're, they're very sensitive and it's unseen yet the impact of having a few words or a new office be created. I'm not sure if that's another 10 years. We cannot afford another 10 years. We've got COVID, small businesses, consumers, we're struggling. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you call it, build back better, whatever. We, we, we need to be regulated for the times. Um, with that, I'm going to throw it back to you, Woody, and I'm going to, uh, the question is, you know, what sort of future do you want to see and where do you see it going three to five years? And, you know, this is the, the future question for you. Well, just to layer onto the bashing for a second. The bashing, yeah, do the bashing first. That <laughs> here from the data Woody. perspective. Um, you know, the, these laws and these regulations that have been put in place have been to the detriment of women, minorities, the average American. Um, they think they might be protecting people, but they're excluding them. Um, and when you look at the opportunity that has come out of investment crowdfunding, the biggest beneficiaries have been women and minorities. I mean, pretty much 40% of all offerings, two out of every five are either a woman or a minority founder that's been successful with this. Where are you getting that money in, in Silicon Valley? I mean, they're trying, they're putting in a lot of face value into saying that they're deploying more capital, but they're not doing a very good job. And if community individuals want to fund people that look like them, let's embrace that and let's get behind it. The data shows that these people tend to be um, more diligent with the capital. They sure as heck deliver better results if you look at the annual reports, then you know your average white guy, it seems. Um, and so I, you know, I think when you look at it from the opportunity that this presents, you know, and I think Andrew had a really good point. You know, this institutional side of things will really, you know, allow this industry to to really exceed. And I mean, we're working on that right now. You know, 
we were taking the data, we partnered with a data science group to sort of look and see what the top 10% of the offerings may that might go on to get VC funding um, with the sole purpose of how do we engage institutional capital into you know, diversifying and deploying down into these companies. Um, I think that's the type of thing where the future is really, really opportunistic. Um, you know, and I think the seeds have been planted and I think we're gonna get there. Um, you know, you know, we're in this sort of, you know, fast follower phase for a lot of what's happening. So, um, you know, it's exciting. Um, fast follower, God knows what Canada is. Jeez. I, I will, Peter Paul, what, what sort of future three to yeah. five, what, what, what's on your mind? Yeah, so I, you know, I we talked a lead a lot about obviously the past and the regulations and all that, and I think I think all all we can basically, uh, uh, for for me, it's sort of it's also sort of uh, you know uh, in a way water under the bridge now. Like we have we have the rules now to to work with uh, here in Canada. We want those limits to go up, and uh, and uh, and and I would say to the regulators is that you see uh, to to what Alex was saying that the the the, the, the the sad thing in a way is that that it took unnecessarily long and it's been driving up sort of the cost of raising capital for companies because of this fragmentation as well as it created uh, a confusion actually on both sides of the market for companies but also for investors because if you're in BC the, you know you, you're sort of as an investor also have different uh, opportunities than when you're in Ontario for, for quite some some time so that's now behind us so that's great so I, I want to actually sort of really look forward in that respect and say it wasn't necessary all I can hope for is that the regulators learn from that and indeed as we learn from these new harmonized crowdfunding rules which will advance like just has happened with uh, rec cf with including limits i would say just you know stick your heads together and, and try to move really faster there and and it doesn't it shouldn't and it mustn't take as long as much time as it did as it did and other than that really it comes now down also to the market i mean you know on, on a really positive note i mean in in in, uh, in america in the US, we're all you know topping uh, a billion a billion US dollars here. Uh, for at least speak for for our platform, you know we've we've done now over 90 deals and over 100 million. So it's 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 growing, and we see sort of I would say an inflection point, which is really exciting to see. Again, as I said at the beginning, we we at the end of the beginning, uh, so it's really starting, but it looks really encouraging. And now it comes down to you know, uh, promoting it in a market. We talked about the huge educational side of it, but it's not even education. It's even about awareness. You know, what I, what we experience is that we talk with companies. We're not even talking about necessarily our own platform, but we also, we actually start with what is investment crowdfunding? How does this work? Can I really raise from the public? Yes, you can. It's it's incredible that when I explain what we're doing, and I'm very clear saying this is for accredited and non-accredited. And there's a question uh, from the audience after a presentation say, just to be clear, this is for credits only right like it's we're so set in that mindset like this is for credits only no it's not this is for anyone and and if usually i say you can invest for as little as 250 canadian dollars and then the coin drops oh wow that those are not the credit investors that this is really accessible to the public so so it's really about building that market now and i think that's where at least where i feel there's been a, a, a lot of heavy lifting certainly if if here in canada it's still Let's say, uh, you know, uh, there, there are only a few platforms like, uh, you know, in a way, uh, a competition means uh, uh, even working harder, but it also means that you're, you're sharing the, 
the sharing the work to to build the market as well right so i think that's where we're where we are and moving forward again i can only say regulators monitor risk move faster you i think you've also fair to say learn from the past you don't want to repeat that and uh and 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 really this is so exciting what we're doing here in terms of you know uh democratizing the market comments made about uh, minorities that get way better access to uh to 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 raising capital female entrepreneurs have been st- traditionally struggling with that we see indeed on our platform that we're sort of uh, uh, outperforming those traditional st- statistics and we want to obviously take it further but that's about you know accessibility and an inclusive uh, inclusive market and again uh, I said it earlier on uh, what what certainly kept me going is to look at other geographies where it's ahead and if you look at the UK where about 40% of startups is now raising through uh, equity crowdfunding platforms fully or use it as an additional channel is, re- channel is really exciting to say final note is that uh, I, I remember being on an on an uh, angel conference. Maybe Alex, you was there as well. You were you may have been there as well years ago in Banff. Uh, uh, Brian Kozak was there, and there was this first sub session about equity crowdfunding. And I remember that uh, you know angel invested. It was basically completely bash like equity crowdfunding. Yeah, I hear that there's this fraud case, and yeah, you know, and nobody in the room. It was just outright dismissed. And so I think traditional investors have been sort of dismissing or saying look this is not going to go anywhere what is exciting to see it's changing you see actually that the majority of the deals on platforms in the uk are are co-invested or or led by angels vcs and other institutional investors now that is really exciting because that's where the different channels come 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 together and and i think that's where it's uh, where it's where it's going stick with it peter paul success is bound to come we if for more success of course 100 million 90 deals is, is pretty impressive uh the 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 point around the support i mean people organizations sectors they need to realize how collaborative crowdfunding could be and this is uh net new capital generally i know there was a big discussion at once about the cannibalization but um we need more support and it's not just from regulators and you know, the it, it's not necessarily a scround, uh, a square peg in a round hole, if that's the expression. There, there's plenty of ways to connect and plenty of enabling um, opportunities with new technology in particular. But over to you, Kim, for your um, sort of future and, and comments around, you know, maybe education and financial inclusion and, and those things that have been touched upon, I, th- I think they resonate. Um, what, do you, what do you see the future as? Yes, I'm going to keep my comments quite brief, but to the point, You know, we live in a centralized economy right now, and I think the regulators are concerned about losing control of that. And at least from the seat that I'm sitting on, and depending on what side of the table I'm on, I see that decentralization of our capital markets is what's going to continue to accelerate. And I think it's only going to be through the decentralization of finance. Will we see the inequality gap potentially lessen um, because today it's going to continue to widen. That gap will widen if we continue with the capital markets operating the way that they do. So I think that some folks have, you know, seen the writing on the wall, whether it's um, using Bitcoin, whether it's using um, DeFi protocols, um, that's the future. And I think people who are not embracing that um, and educating themselves on that. Um, unfortunately, I think they're gonna they're gonna wake up one day and say, "What happened?" But that's the future. Digital wallets are the future. 
um, and what becomes centralized, meaning central bank digital currencies, and what that what does that look like? Will our fiat currencies have any value in them going forward at a certain point? That's a question mark because there is a lot of value when we look at digital assets. And as we continue to educate ourselves on how to, um, you know, to build in a utility for those assets, I think that's where we're going to see the biggest benefit uh, for the next generation to come. So I'm going to, I'm going to just end on that. Those are strong words, strong vision, and, and the 99% versus the, the 1%. I, I love the frame of, of, you know, only helping through a decentralized finance uh, solution. Uh, Technology is here, and I guess the world is trying to figure it out. It's exciting times to be part of it, and um, thank you for, for that. Mr. Dix, over to you. Any, you know, I know your gloves are off. This is more of an innovation question. Um, markets and models in the future, like the demand, where, where, where do you see, this is sort of like almost sum, summing, summing up your, you know, the podcast, what's going on? Yeah, well, I, I think that, um, I think for the U.S. industry and the U.K., as well as Canada, is that it really started focusing on, on crowdfunding portals or platforms where you know you went to to a platform and you invested and you came away with some sort of security i think with the the you know when looking at blockchain technology and you're looking like at platforms like uh, t0 or securitize or are you know um uh, other token uh, sites it's all kind of you know converging for primary and, and secondary offerings it's good. You're not going to be going to different places to do different things. You're going to be going to one place to accomplish many things. And I think we've seen this in other, happen in other sectors of fintech where, you know, an online lender uh, emerged as a digital bank. And I think for platforms today, uh, so, you know, you look at a Republic and, and Republic is offering multiple verticals. They're expanding geographically, but over time, they're going to be offering a greater number of services. And I think that's kind of the future going forward uh, because people don't want to go to, you know, to, to Robin Hood, to go to Chase, to go to, you know, all these different digital services. Uh, the more you can streamline it and kind of simplify the process, the more value you're going to be creating for uh, consumers and, and, and businesses. And yes, it's going to take a long time. Uh, it's like digital securities. I think everybody kind of embraces the fact that that will be a future at some point in time. Well, now we're starting to see, you know, some institutional players in that space, which is vital for uh, sector growth. Um, we kind of know where it's going. It's just going to take some time to get there. But as, as long as our, you know, policymakers don't get in the way and they have a knack for mucking things up, um, you know, we can really accomplish some good things, access the capital, um, providing access to smaller investors. I always believe that the smaller investors should have access to the, to the very best investment opportunities. You don't give the VCs and, and the rich people access to the best deals. You give it to the smaller people first, where you can really democratize some of these services and, and drive benefits, drive value you know, uh, uh, minimize that wealth gap, which tends to expand all the time. Uh, and, and that happens largely because policymakers simply don't understand this. But the good thing is, is we have people like you all 
you know, pounding the drum, championing these messages and pursuing goals that make sense for everybody, not just the 1%. The small guys. Yeah, it's, it's really a, a pitch to, to join us, the digital finance advocates. There's a new group right there, right? Uh, Mr. Wuncha, Alan, I, I know I can see the crystal ball in your eyes. Last words. What do you want to, what, what do you love? What do you, what's going on? I'll keep it brief too. And look, I agree with everything that was said. Kim, so grateful that you just called out decentralization and the challenges there. Uh, we need, we need regulators, uh, you know, the, the regulation gives credibility. There's no question about it. And, you know, people get a, a great level of comfort participating in something that is regulated. Now, that doesn't have to be over-regulation either. And, you know, the fact that we have very, very powerful new technologies that, that you know, in some cases are decentralized, uh, you know, there's there's a continuum of decentralization, but I'll keep you know keep it brief here. There is a need for all of our regulatory partners, if you will, in this marketplace. Even though they're not partners, they're our regulators uh, to really understand the technology as quickly as they possibly can. Because you know, if we if we're going to drive innovation forward, they really need to understand it as as quickly as they can, and not be afraid of it. We've we've unfortunately seen, um, and, and it's, I won't leave it on this note, but unfortunately, a lot of you know fear comes into play because of some high-profile incidents. Now, you know we can move past those, uh, and I'm hope, really hopeful, based on what I'm seeing, that the regulators are ramping up their education level and that they are understanding it. But they need to allow for you know some flexible regulation to take place or to uh, it call it, and I've, I've requested this in, in terms of any exemptive relief that is, uh, that is provided, that it be flexible, that it doesn't, you know, block you in for a, for a certain period of time, that it comes into play, you learn from it, you get to iterate. And so if we could get to some sort of, you know, uh, panacea of, um, of a set of regulations that allow us to, to kind of go beyond a little understand it, get the data, come back to them um, with data, which we can do now with, with these new technologies, I think it'll uh, benefit everybody. So, you know, additional flexibility in terms of our regulations and speed and change. Uh, a proper regulatory sandbox, regulatory yes. toolbox. Um, yes, thank you. Alex, I've you're got, on mute. You've got to run. you got to run. Well, uh, I, okay. Thanks, Alan. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so all much. the best with Token Funder. I know we're we're way past Alex. Yes. Yeah, your 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 future uh, question or your question about what you'd like to see forthcoming from various stakeholders and you know what what a digital finance future in the context of securities-based crowdfunding will look like. There's there's still you know in Canada and the United States uh, an entire population of entrepreneurs and investors that are that the existing rules don't work for. They don't have access to capital. People like me, if I didn't have a university degree, would not have access to capital. Um, certainly, you know, I was talking to my cousin Paul. He's a dentist in Saskatchewan. Um, hi, Paul, if you're listening to this. Um, but, you know, he told me that he was invested in a business of someone, uh, uh, a number of First Nations people had started a business that he invested in. And um, and they got turned down by every single bank that they went to. 
They had raised 500,000 by themselves, but couldn't get any money from anybody. And then he asked me about the rules and what they could do. And he, he wanted to basically, you know, tap into other indigenous people and, and other people from Saskatchewan. And I said, are they accredited investors? And, and he said, no. And I said, you need an offering member. Well, what's that? Well, you're going to need to audit audited financial statements. We don't, we're not going to spend money on that, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, you can only tap accredited investors. I said, you're going to have to approach all your dental friends, all your other dentist friends. And so, you know, it, 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 you don't have access to capital that's even across the board. And you may have certain pockets where there's, we're awash in capital, but we're not awash in capital for people in Montana. Idaho, you know, other places that, that frankly, regulators don't care about. And, um, and, and, you know, you have state regulators that are concerned with fraud and you have provincial regulators that are concerned about the fraud. Um, I think uh, the person that you're talking about, Craig, uh, or Peter, I should say, Peter from the BAMF is not going to say his name, but he's very, very popular accredited investor, very well known in Canada. And he calls, he used to call crowdfunding and say to me on a regular basis, why don't you just call it fraud funding? because that's what it is. You're just gonna open the doors to a bunch of fraud and, and everyone's gonna lose their money. Why don't you just tell them to tear it up, flush it down the toilet? Their money's gonna to go to just as good a use. And, and, and that type of attitude really has to change. You know, the, the small businesses need capital just as much as large businesses. Not everyone's gonna be a unicorn. They're not the only businesses that should be funded. Businesses that are involved in ag tech, businesses that are involved in just plain agricultural, um, endeavors, businesses that are involved in smaller type of enterprises, they all have to start somewhere. There's a couple of twins that I went to high school with in Saskatchewan. They started kind of a, a beauty company. Um, that beauty company is very well known. Uh, they ended up being in the W Hotel in New York and their products are in every single W Hotel. They started alone with their dad for $50,000. That's how their business started. Well, they were lucky to have a dad that could give them 50000 because I think most people don't have that dad. And so we need to start thinking broader in terms of who gets access to capital. Like I said, I was really happy to see Jobs Act 2022. One of the proposals there is for aimed at rural communities in particular. It kind of looks like our startup crowdfunding insofar as it allows people to raise up to $500,000. They're also talking about a venture, uh, a venture, I guess, exchange sort of thing for smaller companies. There's some issues with that, but you know, at, at least Congress is thinking about it and trying, um, and and hopefully those conversations keep going on. But we need those conversations in Canada too. Um, and you can't regulate fraud. You need to stamp down on it. Certainly, I read something today where there was four lawyers involved, and you're thinking, holy shit, they committed a massive fraud on the public. You need to really stamp down on that like slap in the face with a hammer, slap down. But, you know, you can't regulate to the point where no businesses go forward because the regulation bar is too high. So what do I see as the future? <laughs> Decentralization is going to happen whether regulators want it or not. Much like cryptocurrency is happening whether they want it to or not. They're not going to be able to stamp it out. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we're going to move forward and that regulators are going to move forward too because we do need that regulation. Uh, but it needs to be balanced. It can't kill the baby. It, it, it's uh, the, the reality, I guess the reality is cap. Thanks. Thanks for, to everyone for their uh, would be closing remarks. I mean, we have to make capital markets whole and to do that, it's, it's technology is enabling this tremendous opportunity. So 
for all of the right reasons, people need to support and, and join uh, us on this educational journey. And it, it, it starts with, with regulators, but the industry, uh, all the issuers, retail investors, and, and investment groups as well. So we're, we're hopeful. And, and that's where we're ending this uh, podcast. And I really want to thank, and I'm, I'm honored to be collaborating, providing education, connecting with all the guests today for a decade. Uh, and it's eye-watering in, in that context. So um, wishing everyone you know, continued success. Don't give up. The, the, the battle is real. It keeps us all uh, moving forward. And, you know, 10 years since investment crowdfunding since the, or since the Jobs Act was passed, um, we're hopeful for the next, you know, five to 10 years. We'd like to propose coming back in the next three to five years with the same group and we'll benchmark where we're at. We all love data so much. Um, so thanks for everybody for sharing the valuable time and knowledge and expertise with us. Um, I think that's that's a wrap, everyone. Uh, thank you so much. So really appreciate your, your time. And to anyone who's listening, if you're new to FinTech Fridays, please check out some of our incredible past episodes on the site. You'll be surprised with what you find. Uh, and we'll also be sure to post the contact information and links of all the speakers today. So thanks again, everybody. We will see you next Friday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to FinTech Fridays, brought to you by NCFA and Partners. Tune in weekly for the latest FinTech Friday podcast by subscribing to this channel. The National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada is a nonprofit actively engaged with social and investment FinTech sectors around the globe and provides education, research, industry stewardship, services, and networking opportunities to thousands of members and subscribers. For more information, please visit ncfacanada.org.